We are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Carrie Connolly is a writer, certified life coach, author of the blog Jersey Girl Jesus, and host of the podcast White on White, which reimagines white identity apart from pseudo supremacy. She's currently pursuing an MDiv at Christian Theological Seminary and lives in New Jersey with her family. In her newly released book, Good White Racist, Carrie digs into the importance of confronting one's role in racial injustice and disrupting the complacency and comfort of countless white people. Essentially, Carrie exposes the ways white people participate in, benefit from, and unknowingly perpetuate racism, despite their best good person intentions. I've been lucky enough to be with Carrie in several classes at CTS, but one in particular stands out. During a course on activism and social movements in North Carolina, we were paired up together to discuss a number of things about our different contexts. In the beautiful combination of Carrie's outspoken nature and my more quiet demeanor, we challenged each other in aspects where we could be more contemplative, where we could be more active, and questioned what it really meant to have balance. This important conversation, among many more with this dear friend, has helped me continually embrace the vastness of good and important work in the world. As our previous guest, Therese Taylor Stinson writes, so that contemplation can be whole, it must consist of both inward solitude and reflection and outward response to the situations in which we find ourselves present and awake. Carrie's voice is both important and full of insight, and I'm so excited for the work she's doing in this world. Carrie, welcome to Encountering Silence. Hi, thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. So glad you're with us. And while it may seem a bit cliche, we often like to begin by asking our guests about a memory of silence in their lives, which could come from a time in childhood or an early memory of the first time you encountered silence. Mm. So it, it's the first thing that comes to mind when I hear that question, I want, I, I also immediately wanted to judge and be like, no, that's not what they mean, but I have to go with it because it, I feel like it's really coming from who I am, you know, because I was running, <laughs> I was a kid and I was running and I, uh, my family used to go to dog shows and this one happened to be inside and all the kids were upstairs. There was this track like thing above the gymnasium that the show was happening in. And we were all just up there running around like crazy. And I just remember this one moment when I was running full out, like just all the giving all of the power of my body to running. And mm. all of a sudden I experienced what I can only imagine must have been something akin to runner's high. I've never experienced it since, but it was as if there was this big whoosh in my head. I heard uh, this just whooshing sound and everything kind of got blurry in my peripheral vision and moving my body was effortless all of a sudden. And the only thing that I heard, everything became silent after that whoosh. And the only thing that I heard was the sound of my own heartbeat and the sound of my own breath. And 
running, it didn't even feel as if my feet were touching the ground. And it was such a profound moment. And I was young, maybe eight, eight years old. And it was such a profound moment that I still remember that often. And I go back to it because it was like an, it, 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 there was this sense of an intimacy of self, right? Because all of a sudden I was listening to my own heartbeat and my own breath. And, um, you know, that's probably, as you know, Cassidy, you know, you know, me, I am more, much more of an actor, a doer, a, a go out and push. And that's something that I am, I have to, um, work to heal, I think, a little bit in myself through silence. Mm. Just to let you know that that's really does sound like runner's high from somebody who's done a lot of running. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah. I've never been able to get there since I've had other great experiences as, a, as an athlete and a martial artist, but not something like that. That yeah. was, it was so mm. it was so powerful. Yeah. It was really powerful. It's, it's perfect, too. Like you say, oh, that's something we wouldn't want to hear. I, that's exactly what I would want to hear, uh, the, because we've done on this podcast a lot of conversation about the interaction with the physical world and the natural world, our bodies and silence and, and how they all interconnect. And, and I, wow. think, I think it's a nice bridge for this conversation here um, because of the work you do is about bodies in the world, you know. That's very true. So, that's true. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think what we might say here on the podcast is that a healthy silence is an embodied silence. Mm, that's beautiful. I love that. And um, there is so much, uh, you know, Cassidy and I were also just recently in a class on world religions. And um, one of the things that uh, we were really, or that we uh, experienced was um, we delved into Buddhism a little bit. And one of the things that um, I kind of was surprised to discover I was frustrated with Buddhism was um, the, in, the, in its origins, the way that it sort of denied the body. And as a woman, and as somebody who has been so um, touched by liberation theology and um, womanism and the way that womanism um, experiences embodiment, you know, where Buddhism wants to tame the body and tame the will. And this is my very limited understanding. So please, you know, I, I have very little understanding of Buddhism, but this was just my, my thoughts, uh, initial thoughts. Um, as a woman, I have been so socialized to be tamed that I desperately want to free and deliberate my, my body and my mind, you know? Um, so, so for me, I felt resistant to that particular tenet of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, Just to say, I'm, I'm excited about it because I teach world religions. I teach comparative stuff um, all uh, the time. And Buddhism is, is an area of expertise for me. I do all the religions, but Buddhism, just as a response to you, just to let you know if yeah. you ever care. I care. Because, <laughs> because, no, because some people take world religions and they're like, that was fine. And I move on. And, but to finish, you're on to something because this is the same problem it's not that it's the same problem that we have in Christianity when people look at monasticism and mysticism and we go, oh, we're very anti-body. There's a seed of truth in that. There is a seed of truth in the Christian and the Buddhist traditions that there was kind of a, an anti-body piece to it. I think it's been that fire has been flamed, uh, fanned. Uh, because we as a culture are anti-body. We're very in our heads, we're into ideas. Um, we're very much about tame, and I'm, my work is very much about wildness. And so 
the problem here is it's not that Buddha or or the monastics were anti-body, so speak. They were kind of anti—the categories that they had are very different categories than ours. And when we translate those words, the translation isn't really that good. So I spend a lot of time mm-hmm. unpacking in Buddhism, for instance, the kind of the ancient shamanistic— and ancient embodied practices that were there in yoga and that Buddhas that were then interpreted in the 1800s and 1900s as anti-body, anti-life, anti-very nihilistic kind of feeling. Ah, and, hmm. and it's not that at all. And we have yeah. that same interpretation with the mystics and the desert masters, that when you read those, there's this kind of ant- puritanical Protestant enlightenment scientific Jansenist. Jansenist. There's all these kinds of schools of thought that when they went back and read the desert masters, the mystics, the Buddhists, they were like, hey, antibody. And then they used it as a weapon against women, against mm-hmm. people of color, against yep. and, and they used that. So you're on to something that there is a problem, but I yes. think the, the original texts don't play that out. It's a translation problem and we need to relearn. Mm. So I, I that like doesn't that. surprise me. Thank you so much for that education, because it, it doesn't surprise me whatsoever that, you know, um, the way that translations cause problems. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> so so, Carrie, I want to I want to turn us back to to your work. And but I guess along with this, right, oftentimes when we find ourselves working to do that, the undoing of the taming, right, and the the rewilding of ourselves this oftentimes leads us to seeing that deep interconnectivity to all beings. And it's pretty clear that your work is all about the fact that we're all caught up in this inescapable network of mutuality. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the origin of your book, Good White Racist, Confronting Your Role in Racial Injustice. Uh, once again, my seminary journey has played a huge role in in my, my life and my thinking. And um, I, one of the very first classes that I took at seminary, we were assigned to watch the episode of On Being with Ruby Sales. And if you don't know Ruby Sales, she was a she is a public theologian. And when she was 17 years old, she was uh, at a some sort of a civil rights rally or event, and a white seminarian young man threw himself in front of her um, and took a bullet for her and died. And that radically changed her perspective. And so in this episode of On Being, she made a comment, and I, I promise you, I listened to this episode about 15 times, and it's probably time to go back and listen to it again. But in this episode, she said something that really just stuck with me. She said, I know that we have a Black liberating theology. She said, what I want to know is where is the white liberating theology? And I was so struck by that. First of all, it took me days just to get over the generosity of that. And it's such a womanist a womanist thing to say, right? Um, and, and so I was so struck by the generosity of her statement, where is the white liberating theology? But then I started really thinking what I started thinking about white identity itself. And I started realizing that we don't know as white people, as an identity, as a group of people, we don't know what to be without the construct of pseudo supremacy. And I, we, we've experienced a failure of imagination as to, and so we, we are not able to, to dismantle racism because without racism, we don't know what we would be in the world. And so that's kind of what got me started thinking. And, and I started writing to that effect. 
And what I realized is that as a white person in an anti-racist space, I can't speak about the black experience. I can't speak about um, what it's like to be uh, Korean American or, you know, Mexican American. I can't speak to any of that. But what I can speak about is the white identity and the white experience. And our our identity as white people is often invisible to us. And by, that's by design. That's by construct. And so I think that the reason that I kind of, that I wanted to write this book um, and w- what it became eventually is probably very different from it's a, the original intent as any writing project usually is. But what I really wanted to do, so I wanted to get white people thinking about our own whiteness. Carrie, I really want to thank you for this book. You know, as somebody who has been the recipient, and I guess you could say the beneficiary, if we could use that word, of, you know, the social privilege that comes with with whiteness, that comes with maleness, that comes with being in a heterosexual marriage, with having a college education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's certainly been on my radar for a long time that, yes, I'm the beneficiary of privilege and that part of my commitment to being a follower of Jesus Christ and to wanting to be a good person is to step out of that. For those of us who are the beneficiaries of privilege and who are concerned about that, that you have really um, offered, I think, in a very accessible way for persons who are white-coded, who are white-identified, to respond to what that means and and to begin to dismantle that. I told Kevin and Casty after I read the book that you know, if I had enough money, I would buy this for every white person in the world. I just think it, it really is just a very, very important book. So I just, thank you know, I just want to say, say thank you. This conversation on Encountering Silence will continue after a 30-second break of silence. Take a moment and breathe with us. So I just want to go to um, to one sentence in the book mm-hmm. and, you know, bringing it back to the, you know, the theme of this podcast, which, of course, is silence. And hopefully this sentence can be kind of a jumping off point as we begin to reflect on, you know, this question of what does it mean to confront one's own role in racial injustice. And you talk about that it's in the beginning of the book, it's on page 17, being complicit in the system of white silence. And of course, one of the the things, when, when we, we started this podcast, Kevin and Casty and I are basically silence nerds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I've, I won't speak for them, but I have learned a lot about silence and about kind of the social ramifications of silence mm-hmm. while doing this podcast. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that, that I've had to confront is the reality that silence has a toxic manifestation in many yes. social locations. Yes. And so, you know, so what you, you talk specifically about white silence. So mm-hmm. that kind of falls under this umbrella that we talk about toxic silence. But I'm wondering if you could unpack that for, for us and for listeners. What is white silence and how does it play out in the world? Yeah, that's, 
It's such an important question. And it's not like everything else. It's not necessarily a simple question. It's not as simple as it sounds, right? Because I think that there are many things at play. One of the things, you know, first of all, we think about, I always think about this as a, on two levels, a relational, a personal re- relational, right? The I have to look at the racism within myself, whether I want to acknowledge that it's there or not. I have to look at that. And I have to look at how that inter interacts or how that, that plays out in my, in my personal interactions. Um, with people of color, uh, with the BIPOC community, I've recently learned to not to use BIPOC rather than people of color. It's more important. Um, so not just with people of color or with the BIPOC Carrie, community. Yes. Real quick. Can you unpack BIPOC, BIPOC for us, for our listeners? Um, yes. Please. So BIPOC is black indigenous people of color. And one of the, I was just, I was on another podcast with all black men and they expressed to me how they prefer to not be referred to as people of color because the black experience is very unique. And, um, it kind of, they explained to me that it really kind of lumps them in with every, and every group is unique and needs, deserves unique recognition. So I'm trying to remind myself and to learn that lesson to use BIPOC instead of people of color. So not only does this play out, does white silence play out in my, within myself and within my interpersonal relationships, but it also plays out systemically. So a systemic example of white silence is, um, for example, the way that we as a society will gaslight people of color who are trying to call out racism. And the Take a Knee movement is a great example of that. The the Take a Knee movement is a perfect example of people of color attempting to peacefully bring attention to a very specific uh, result of systemic racism in our country, which is police brutality. And white people will talk about everything but the issue at hand. We will talk about the flag. We will talk about our soldiers. We will talk about you know, national pride. We will talk about patriotism. We will talk about just do your job. We will talk about all of the things, but we refuse. We we insist upon remaining silent about discussing the actual problem. So that's just one example of way of a way that toxic silence around racism plays out systemically. Interpersonal. uh, toxic silence would occur around dining room tables in personal relationships. And the reason that that is not as simple, it's simple. What is the, what is the phrase? It's simple, but not easy. Or it's yeah, something like that. Right. It's, it's, it's a simple concept. Hey, when, when uncle Joe tells a racist joke, say something, right. But that's not always that easy for a number of different reasons, right? It's the same reason why, we we have trouble sometimes standing up to people in authority in our lives, like parents, bosses, right? There are unseen, unspoken power dynamics in all sorts of relationships that including, and especially around our families of origin very often, that are neurobiological. I mean, these are neurobiological drives, that things that are embedded in our brains that our brain is trying to keep us safe. And so when we speak out, especially in systems of family systems or systems of social support for us, the, uh, the threat that we might lose that social support 
whether it's a family system, a friendship system, is really powerful. Mm. It's really powerful. And it's it's powerful on a neurobiological level, right? So we need to be practicing agency over those kinds of drives for safety. And it's not always easy. And listen, you are going to probably lose somebody or something mm. in if you want to become an anti-racist in the world. You will there will be loss. Um, I've had family members literally tell me to consider them dead because of this work. I've gotten, I've, I've had friends unfriend me on Facebook because of this work, right? That there, there is going to be a cost, but that's, that's okay. That's, that's gotta be okay. Mm. I, I like the way you qualified it at the end. It's gotta be okay. Because yeah. because neurobiologically in the beginning it doesn't feel okay it feels it 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 hurts and I think it feeds into this very well that this is so that's why this book is so powerful for me is is that racism just hurts it just it just mm-hmm. it, it hurts it just hurts like it it just it is causing so much damage mm-hmm. it, it, it and it's not it's not just damage. And this is where Ruby sales really hit me, right? Is that it's not just about the damage being done to the BIPOC community. It's about the, the disfigurement of white souls, right? Mm -hmm. We are not, we are losing a part of our humanity by not being able to see the humanity fully of the BIPOC community, um, or being willing to see it, but only just so far until it means that we have to give something up. Right. Because Mm. and that's because we can't we have not yet done the labor of imagining what we would be once we give that up. One of the stories that this really hit home for me was um, there is an organization that I'm a part of that uh, we we are an organization that really cares about this stuff. Right. But we're mostly a white organization. We're trying we've taken a lot of steps to change that, to bring BIPOC, members of the BIPOC community into to uh, in le- into leadership positions. But in the beginning, they, there were, I wasn't at this conference, but there was a conference that they were putting on. I heard the story later. And they had the one white guy who was going to speak, right? Because at these conferences, Christian, especially Christian conferences, we are famous for putting up a whole bunch of white guys up on the stage, right? And nobody else, straight white guys. And so in this particular conference, they were doing the hard work of making sure that there was a diversity on the panel, right? And that's not as easy as it seems, believe it or not. It's really not as easy as it seems. And so they they did that work. They had the one white guy. And all of the other spots were reserved for members of the BIPOC community, women, member, you know, uh, uh, members of the LGBTQ community. And so there was this other guy who wasn't the one white guy that had gotten the white guy slot. And he was kind of like... I'm, I'm down for this. Like I, I'm here for this. This is what I, I I believe in everything we're doing, but I don't know what's next for me because that's my gig. And if there's no room for me to do my gig, because that's what he was always doing. So if there's no room for him to do his gig, what, what's next for him. And Mm. so for white people to find our meaning and to find our our essence of being apart from this construct of pseudo supremacy, that's the real work that white people have to do. Because until we can do that, we're never going to be able to, we're never going to be truly willing to dismantle racist systems. Yeah, because that mm. now you're talking about something that's more than neurobiological. Now you're getting into economics. 
Now you're getting mm-hmm. into self-identity. Now you're, I mean, so now, like you, this work is just so hard. Mm-hmm. It is. It strikes me, Carrie, that a lot of this is about ultimately paying attention. And in your chapter on the power of language, you write, truly good people who want to engage in anti-racism do the hard work of paying attention. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, first I want to, it reminded me of um, Simone Weil when she says, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And she goes on to write, absolutely unmixed attention is prayer. Mm. And so, you know, amid this pandemic, right, and this collective slowdown, it's really shown me the power of pausing and silence and resting and paying attention to those moments where our own bodies are telling us something and ultimately the body at large, humanity. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, you know, obviously when we pause, right, when we pause and when we think of these moments, when we pay attention, obviously the injustices are as clear as ever in terms of our political systems, our healthcare, um, <laughs> the numbers of black deaths from COVID right now is just, it's incredibly clear, the injustices in the world and countless other systems, right, that, that we're discussing. So I guess my question for you is how, how do we, amid a collective slowdown like this and the sheltering in place, do we truly pay attention and stay awake and not keep silent to these injustices mm. um, when also um, a matter of caring for our fellow human is also a matter of, of staying home? Mm. Um, but mm. that, doesn't, that doesn't mean being silent. Um, maybe that just means physically being silent. Mm. Oh, so many... So many things I want to say. Um, <laughs> Take them one at a time. Yeah. So there's there's a few things. The f- one thing that I, I say in the book sometimes is um, hashtag notice the system, right? And what what I mean by that, and I think we are being given this a really amazing opportunity right now to watch the system play out. And you can see it with the way the COVID COVID pandemic is happening. And now, and I was waiting for this to happen. I knew the numbers would come out eventually the way that uh, Black people are disproportionately representing the number of deaths and less testing. And it's the numbers are probably far, far more skewed than we even know. But one of the ways that we can notice the system is we can see, first of all, we can recognize that the numbers are there, right? There is some sort of disproportionate number of, of black people who are, are dying. And then there is the, the system that is blaming the black people for their own deaths. Um, and if you haven't noticed that, I'm going to ask you to notice that, right? There, there is a group of people and some of them are figureheads. Some of them may even be black people who are saying black people should stop drinking and smoking and then they wouldn't get COVID. There is a willful, a willful blindness to the generations of systemic injustice that families, black families, have endured that have economically ruined them, challenged them, kept them from growing the kinds of wealth that white people are able to to develop over the course of generations, which removes access from education, which removes access from healthcare which removes access from jobs, all of these things that all play into uh, the fact that Black people are suffering from COVID. So if 
Black people tend be, not because of, and this is so important to say, and it's the kind of thing that people don't say often enough, not because of some sort of essential or es- not because of some sort of essence of blackness, but because of systemic racism, black people tend to live in impoverished neighborhoods, not because of their blackness, but because of racism and anti-blackness. They are not poor because they are black. They are poor because of racism. That poverty prevents them from access to resources that white people have all the time. This concludes part one of a two-part episode. Stick with us next week when we hear part two. We are Encountering Silence. I'm Cassidy Hall. To learn more about me, please visit CassidyHall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. To find out more about my work, visit my website, KevinMichaelJohnson.com. I'm Carl McCollman. My website is CarlMcCollman.com. Please visit the podcast website at EncounteringSilence.com. There you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. By making a purchase through our website, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Also, to learn more about how you can be a part of our circle of supporters, visit patreon.com slash encountering silence. This way you can share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all too noisy world.